Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, it is officially Nationals season. For those listening to this episode, uh, they know that Nationals is just a couple of days away. Uh, And as everyone, I think, in our community is familiar, uh, each year at Nationals, it's been this way for now six or seven years, we get rid of the case that we've been using all year, and we use a brand new case only for Nationals. Uh, We've got a brand new case this year, and we are really thrilled to have two of the group of people who wrote that case uh, here on the show, and that would be Sarah Stebbins and Justin Bernstein. Uh, I'm sure those of us, uh, those of you in the community who've been around are familiar with with both of them. Sarah, of course, competed at Georgia Tech, multi-time All-American, a very, very well-decorated uh, AMTA competitor and just a, you know one of the best AMTA competitors in history. And her success has continued at UCLA, where her team just won the Tyla National Trial Competition, narrowly edging out the other team, also from UCLA. Um, So Sarah's uh, success in AMTA and law school is very well known, and she played a major role in writing the case. So Sarah, it's great to have you on. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And of course, along with Sarah, we've got Justin Bernstein. Justin is the director at the UCLA School of Law's trial team. Uh, UCLA, of course, is the most successful trial team in the country over the last several years. They just finished off a sweep of the two major national competitions, NTC and AAJ, for I believe the third consecutive year. Um, And Justin, of course, is a friend of the show. Uh, Justin was our very first guest of the show now over five years ago, back on episode one. He also appeared on episode 17 and episode 28. So this is his fourth time back on the show. And we're thrilled to have him on to talk about this year's Nationals case. So Justin, thanks for coming back. Thanks for inviting me. I don't think I remembered, or maybe I, I knew and, and forgot, but I, I didn't realize that I was on the first episode. Uh, what, yep. what number What number are you guys on now? Uh, this will be episode 86. Uh, so we're still going wow. five years strong. Congratulations. Thank you. It's it's good to have you on. We're thrilled to have both of you on the show. Uh, so, Drew, I'm going to kick it over to you because I know yeah. you and Sarah have a little bit of overlap in Sarah's origin story. So I want to give you an opportunity to ask about that. So, Drew, you want to take us through and, and get Sarah's origin story? I, I certainly will. And I'll, I'll say that it, it's great for me getting to chat with both of you because I literally just last weekend when we were at Tyler Nationals together got to chat with both of you there a little bit. So I feel like, you know, we're just kind of resuming some of those conversations. Um, but congratulations, first of all, to to Sarah, to you and, and Justin as well um, on, on all the victories that your program had. We were just joking off the mics that UCLA has become the dark side of law school mock trial because you just win at literally everything and everyone tries to beat you and, and no one can. So it's it's pretty impressive, um, I, I will say. But um, as M- much appreciated. <laughs> but and much deserved. Um, but as Ben alluded, Sarah, obviously you and I crossed paths many times in both the high school and undergraduate world of mock trial. But I'll I'll let you give the the version of your origin story uh I sense that mine might sound a little different, but uh, go ahead. Tell them how you got started. Yeah. So um, my mock trial origin story is maybe not what most people would initially expect. I started as a witness. Um, My high school program had a rule that you had to witness before you could be an attorney. Um, And as a freshman in high school, I was incredibly shy. Um, In fact, so shy that I was too shy to try out for the team. I volunteered months in advance to be the timekeeper, uh, which surprised my coaches because timekeeping was not something you needed months of practice for. Uh, but I was ready to go. Uh, I was at all the practices. 
ready with my little stopwatch to keep time. And then um, about two weeks before regionals, one of the witnesses had a conflict come up and ended up having to drop out. And my coaches were like, well, Sarah's been here for all the practices and she knows what the case is and she kind of knows what's going on. So do you want to be the witness? Uh, I've never been more terrified in my life. <laughs> I hopped in and became the witness for regionals. And it was sort of all downhill from there. Uh, here I uh, attorneyed for the first time. Um, I actually, funny enough, almost didn't get the attorney spot on my high school team. My audition was so horrible. Um, but I scored really high on our rules of evidence test. <laughs> so <laughs> they they gave it to me over someone else, despite my abysmal opening statement that I gave. <laughs> well, I can certainly attest to the fact that what Sarah is alluding to about her high school team, they, they were a absolutely dominant force in the Georgia high school mock trial world. And I remember going up against AIS, which is your high school, Sarah, um, many, many times. And and we always lost. And yeah, it, you guys it, were in it, our region, right? Yes. Well, the Georgia high school regions are kind of different. They are. And, and for those that don't no, essentially, there are you know geographic regions the way you would expect, and you kind of have to be one of the top two teams at your region to advance to state. And we were both in kind of the greater Atlanta uh, region that was just absolutely brutal. And between you guys and Grady, one of the two of you pretty much always won states, and the two of you pretty much always moved on to the state tournament. But little Galloway never, never got our chance until a little later on. Well, it's not, it's not like AMTA. They don't power balance the regionals. No, so not. it's just, it's pure geography. Wherever you exactly. get stuck is where you are. Um, but Sarah, obviously you continued on to the undergraduate world where has been I did. alluded. You won many, many awards. And I, I wanted to briefly tell this story um, before we, we get into the rest of the episode, because I think it's a pretty funny one. But um, I assume that you don't care or remember or think much about this round but uh when we were at florida state's tournament um in 2018 in january we faced you guys in round four i do um, remember this is this when round. you were on tech okay well i'm <laughs> i'm honored that you do um and i will tell you the side of this story that you probably don't know which is that my team haverford's team at the time um wasn't really like we we knew our ballot scores but they had been very paranoid about like not knowing who we were going against. And I was the only one who knew. And going into that round, I'm driving to McDonald's with one of my co-counsels. Actually, he's on Yale's team, Nick, um, great guy. And he and I are driving to McDonald's and I knew that we were facing you guys. And he knew that we had just beaten Florida and that we were really excited. Like, okay, we're doing well, whatever. And he was like, who are we facing next? And I was like, I'm not going to tell you. And he was like, that means it's tech, right? And I was like, I'm not going to tell you. And he's like, I mean, I'm going to know when they walk in. Just tell me. Like, I don't want to <laughs> walk into that room and be surprised. And I was like, okay, yeah, it's tech. And he starts freaking out and going, okay, all right. Like, how? what are we going to do? What, what's going to happen? And I'm like, all right, here's the deal. Like, you don't know objections as well as Sarah. Like, just <laughs> we're not going to object to her. Like, just don't do it. And he was like, okay, okay. Like, all right, we got this. And we go into the round. It was a great round. Really fun. It was, yeah. We did not object to you guys <laughs> at all. And it was really funny because, like, there were multiple times where, like, I mean, me and my two co-counselors were all really close. And, like, we'd be writing notes to each other the whole time. And he would, like, write me, you know, like, should I try this one? I'm like, 
no, just, just don't do it. Like it's not worth it. Like she's going to make you look really dumb. And, and it was, it was a great round, obviously. Yeah. Um, No, it was. That's, that's quite the compliment of my, of my evidentiary skills. Oh my gosh. It's very kind of you. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that round because I remember I was doing my, well, we'd never hit you guys before. And, um, I ended up doing like my second non-pref cross or something because mm. of just how the call worked out. So I remember that because I stood up and I was like, I barely know what's in this cross. We're going to see how this goes. <laughs> Cause you know how it is in AMTA. You're doing like your oh, yeah. second or third non-pref and you're like, I've read this. I like kind of know the material, but I'm definitely not like as ready to do this as I am the one I've really been doing all semester long. And you sort of just are looking at the witness like, Buckle up. We'll see. We'll see how this cross turns out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I didn't even remember us having that weird of a call. I guess it. Was, I think we didn't call Waters. I don't know. Anyway, th- we don't need to get into the depths of that case. But it was a great time. Uh, anyway, really fun trial. Y'all got the better of us at nationals. But uh, yes, I've, I've hit Sarah many a time and can attest that she is is one of the best. And it was great to see you guys and do so well at Thailand nationals. But all right, enough of our of our you know chatting back and forth i want to before we say anything else what made you want sarah to to write a case especially one for amta like i mean justin obviously has done it so many times before but what how did you get roped into that like what's the story there (laughs) yeah so i actually have uh i've written some cases before um i used to help write for empire mock trial which does high school competitions um i've been on case committees for them a few times in the past and i always enjoyed it um, and I, I mean, obviously the chance to write an APTA case is both a huge honor and also I know a very big deal. Um, cause there's, you know, it was a community that meant so much to me and that I obviously got to participate in for a few years and was, was a really formative part of my college experience. And so when, uh, when Justin sort of approached us and said, Hey, we have this opportunity. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I would, I would love to do that. It sounds, um, sounds awesome. And it was, <laughs> Well, Sarah, you alluded to this, so let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, and maybe, Justin, this is something that you could chime in about and kind of give us a sense of the background. So this is a really interesting way that this case has come about. So the case, as it's stylized in this year's case, which is Robin Sky versus Aubrey Gold, um, which is a civil case for nationals, it says written by the UCLA School of Law trial team, and then it has five members of the trial team, as well as Justin Bernstein. So how did that come about? And once that uh, occurred. And once it was decided that the six of you were going to work together and write this case, how did you eventually settle on the topic that you guys did specifically sort of the ethics and legal malpractice framework that you did for this year's case? Sarah, why don't I talk about how we became the authors and then you want to talk about the topic selection? Sure. So for the last few years, um, some empty presidents have asked me to you know, be on various committees, including the case committee, and I just haven't had the time to do it. Um, I, I love doing it, but it just, it's a tremendous amount of time. And two years ago, UCLA law approved a writing credit. If it involved litigation or any sort of, um, research, uh, that wasn't just creative writing. And I got them to approve that for use for Montreal cases. And I thought, well, this is the opportunity. So I reached out to Jonathan Woodward. I said, I'd be willing to work on the case if I can write it with my students. And so the UCLA law trial team uh, got course credit uh, for writing the case. And this was unique for me because I really wasn't an author. I mean, I, I helped sort of guide the process and then 
when things were drafted as Sarah can tell you, I sort of helped Sarah mm-hmm. tie things together. Uh, but the students did the work on this case. Okay. So Sarah, your, your side of things then. So Justin sort of gave us how we got there. You, you guys get in a room and you start to figure out what you're going to do. How did you end up with the topic that we all have now seen? Yeah. So we started sort of with a, with a general brainstorm. I think we ended, we started with, what was it, Justin? I think five or six different ideas. Um, we, we had, we had more than 20 at the very beginning and then we, na- then we narrowed it. Okay. Yeah. We had, we had five or six like primary ones. And so, I mean, everybody on the committee has, has done AMTA before. And so I think all of us were both excited to get to write the case, but we also all had kind of had ideas of things we thought would make interesting AMTA cases. So we narrowed it down um, and we kept sort of running through and trying to come up with something that would be interesting and not too similar to, you know, immediately previous cases that students had maybe already done um, something that was maybe a different legal issue. And so we sort of kept whittling it down. Um, and as we did, we were trying to think about it also from a mock trial standpoint in terms of like, Hey, that might be an interesting case, but I think the witnesses would be too complicated or that would be too much for a nationals case, kind of things like that. Um, we sent a couple, I think three different topics to AMTA, um, to see, you know, which ones they would approve. And they approved, I want to say two of the three. And then we sort of came back to do a final selection based on those two. And we landed on this one because we thought it was going to be kind of the most interesting, the most unique and the the least similar to something students had maybe seen before and give them the opportunity to kind of explore a, an interesting legal issue that was confined enough that it would still function well for a nationals case. Well, you kind of touched on this, but but I'll, I'll ask it as a follow up. This case, I think, looks very different. Um, I mean, there are, there are plenty of similarities to what we do, but in its broad framework, having a legal malpractice case and specifically having this, you know, examining a previous trial and, and having discussions about a previous trial, I think is a very unique thing. Um, it is something that you see sometimes at the law school level. There's actually a national ethics trial competition that that does stuff like this. And some of the packets for that competition have some similarities to to what you all did. So what specifically about this framework and this type of case appealed to you all as as AMTA veterans who were producing something for an AMTA national championship? I think it was kind of, um, I think it was a fewfold. One, especially with civil, um, there's a lot of negligence in AMTA, obviously, for incredibly understandable reasons. (laughs) Negligence is a very, very broad legal topic. So obviously, there's a bunch of different fact patterns that can fit within that. Um, but we thought that this was something that was just really completely different and would be interesting to get to engage with. Obviously, you know, the the standard is unique in terms of it is a negligence standard, but like, you know, overall, the legal framework being something that was uh, going to be interesting. And then I think we also thought that it would have opportunities for fun witness selections. Like, I know one of the things we really thought about was Given the obviously the witnesses are scored in AMTA, we wanted to make sure that people could have fun with the characters, that there were opportunities for people to make interesting witnesses out of, you know, the swings and not have it all be all experts, for instance, or all um, parties who are going to have to be sort of emotionally involved with this somehow. And I thought I think we thought this struck a good balance in terms of there was a range of how you could portray these witnesses and how you could have um, who you could call and what you could make your case look like in a way that uh, we thought would be interesting and fun. Justin, feel free to jump in if I'm missing anything. <laughs> I, I think you covered it well. Well, I'll ask you guys this next question. And maybe Justin, as someone that has written and is so familiar with these cases, maybe if you want to start out. But I think that it's fair to say that this case really resembles 
a law school case almost more so than a traditional AMTA case. And, you know, the fact that all the statements are in the form of depositions instead of affidavits, um, you know, just for example. Um, But do you feel like there was some intentional side to that? Um, Or do you feel like you disagree? Do you think it is written more similarly to an AMTA case? Um, And just kind of what the motivation was behind it, if not? Sure. So I think of this as written the same way I'd write any empty case. Um, the decision to have depositions that have affidavits, um, I think we basically just, I asked the students, what do you want to do? And they were unanimous. They wanted to do depots. And I said, that's fine with me as long as it doesn't make the case too long. Because usually depots on a page count level will run longer. Uh, but if you've seen a lot of law school cases, uh, I wish more law school cases had the quality and approach of empty cases. Um, for example, we included case law. You're not going to see case law in uh, in law school cases. Um, the pretrial order is far more detailed. We actually answered teams' questions, which law school cases tend not to do. Mm. Uh, I'd say the biggest difference between this and a typical AMTA case is the fact that we got rid of special instructions. And that wasn't to try to make it resemble law school. It was that I think sometimes it's awkward to cite special instructions to a judge and so we tried to take everything that needed to be in the special instructions and just put it into one document, the pretrial order. That way, everything was in one place. We thought that was particularly helpful for a nationals case where it's nice to have fewer documents. It's nice to have fewer things to remember where they are. Uh, so we're just trying to make it easier. Yeah. Just to kind of piggyback off that, and when it comes to the special instructions, I think um, Justin's absolutely right in terms of that being the motivation. Obviously, since um, all of us authors have done AMTA. I'm sure we've all had the experience. I know we all have, and I'm sure you guys have as well, had the experience of needing to cite a special instruction and then having to explain to a judge like what a special instruction is and how these are like weird mock trial rules that like you have to follow, but the judge is probably not familiar with and has never seen before. It's not like a standard legal document. And so that decision was was primarily motivated to just make it easier for teams if they needed to reference something judges know what pretrial orders are. It's kind of less confusing to point a judge to a pretrial order if you do need to cite those special instructions versus having to explain what special instructions are and then <laughs> basically tell the court, oh, and also, by the way, you have to follow this. Right. <laughs> and, and let me let me just clarify to my initial question that, Justin, you're absolutely right. I've read enough law school cases. This is a vastly better written case than any law school case I've read so far. So do not... I do not want that to be seen as a knock. I actually really enjoyed reading this case. I, 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 I didn't take it that way. <laughs> no, good, good. Um, but I, I do think that there is, I, I will say that for my part, I really enjoyed the the real aspect that to me is in this case um, from the perspective of, I think, malpractice is an interesting issue, but it also does just, to your point about the special instructions, depositions, it does give, I think, students a more practical uh, and more applicable skill to work with those types of documents. That's what they're going to be working with, whether it's in law school or in beyond. Um, and I feel like it's it's a, a better skill for them to be working on than just dealing with these, you know, an entirely affidavit case that's probably not going to be what they often do. With the caveat that because of all the, you know, invention problems that would come with having every single witness have a deposition, kind of the last question on, I think, every deposition I read was a kind of catch-all, do you have anything else to add? And I'm saying no. And then you kind of have that as a potential omission impeachment uh, question if you needed to. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that's a great observation, Drew, because 
even though these are styled as depositions, that catch-all phrase at the end actually sort of converts them to affidavits for all meaningful purposes. Yeah. Um, we, we thought a lot about whether we wanted the affidavitless witnesses, and I'm a big proponent of them. Um, I'm dating myself, but I, I wrote the first affidavitless witness back in, I think it was 2015, for nationals. And I think they're great. Um, I think they encourage creativity and they stretch what students and teams can do. I was a little reluctant to do it for a nationals case because you just don't know what kind of Pandora's box you're opening. And by the time you do, it can be too late, particularly in a year where we're introducing the CIC review. Um, I thought that was a potentially dangerous thing. Um, and so that, that's the reason why these are depots that have some constraints unlike a year long case. Yeah, and and that makes a lot of sense, and and we'll we'll get to at least some elements of the CIC stuff in, in just a little bit. But Sarah, I actually wanted to follow up on something that you said a moment ago related to uh, sort of how to craft this case. You alluded to you know the notion of witnesses and how you know you picked this topic in part because of just how interesting you thought it would be, but also the ability to create interesting witnesses. This is something at the nationals level that I think we've seen varying levels of success in execution where some nationals cases have had a wide variety of of really interesting witnesses. And without naming specific cases, I think some nationals cases haven't had as much of that variety or they've been a topic where it's more difficult to get a lot of witness variety. So once you choose this topic and you're figuring out, okay, who are our cast of characters? How did you go about putting together a group that you feel like was authentic, but also gives the 48 best teams in the country the ability to stretch their legs and show off their witness talent uh, at you know our highest stage? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it sort of started, I think it starts at least in our mind with when we were coming up with the topic. Like we were very much discussing witness options when we were choosing the topic, because we didn't want to end up in a situation where we picked a topic that was really interesting. And then we went, oh, wait, who are we going to have the witnesses be? <laughs> like, this isn't going to work on a witness front. Um, in terms of how we built the, the the choices, having having done some case writing before, um, and then obviously all of us having done a lot of AMTA, I think we tried to think about it in terms of kind of realistically what a team would want to call. So we tried to say, you know, okay, to meet their burden, teams are probably going to want to call these witnesses. And if that's true, then we want to make sure that the characters are sort of equally balanced factually, such that if a, if a team wanted to call one over the other, for character purposes, they could do whatever character fit the most. Like we didn't want to shoehorn schools into feeling like the only way your case works factually is to have you know, two experts in a party, right? Or is to have, you know, a party, a sad witness and an expert or something like that. Um, and so I think the biggest sort of balance we did was trying to make sure the character witnesses had real meat to them and real content such that teams could marry their legal strategic choices with their character choices, since obviously in AMTA, the witnesses are scored. And so we want to give teams the opportunity to showcase, you know, their, their acting chops, their character chops. Um, but I think a lot of times that's difficult to balance if those characters don't have enough substantive content to them. Um, so I think that was really the main thing, trying to make sure that, that our characters were both not all going to be of one type, that there was a range in terms of, you know, we wanted experts, we wanted, you know, witnesses who were going to have an emotional stake in the case, like parties, we wanted some characters. Um, 
We wanted all of them to be relevant, <laughs> such that you could sort of call <laughs> any combination of them and your case would make sense. Um, and then also I think topic-wise, I think there are times when a case topic is so serious. And the one I'm thinking of, this is not a nationals case, but my very first case was the uh, Jesse Duran and Sydney Park case, which was um, you know two preteens, one of whom shoots the other one. And that was a really interesting case topic, like well-written case, enjoyed it. But the topic was so serious that it's tough to have a goofy character get on the stand and be like, ha ha ha, I'm making jokes. A 12-year-old's dead. <laughs> like, yep. you know, yep. the, the tone of that can just feel inappropriate. And so I think we wanted to also try to make sure the topic was something that uh, it would be appropriate for teams to kind of do characters with without it feeling like, ooh, maybe, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. One other thought on the, the witness uh, selection. I agree with everything Sarah said. I'll add... When you're writing any case, you want to make sure there's variety of witnesses, so you know students of all of all types and strengths and portrayals can can excel. But this is a different level of inclusiveness because it comes down to fairness. It's not fair for a team to have a, a witness type uh, do really well all year, and then when they qualify to nationals, that student doesn't have a role. And so, if you think of the four major witness types, there's the emotional type, uh, often a party to the case, law enforcement experts and the character fund witnesses, we want to make sure that those were not only available, but available to both sides. That makes a lot of sense. And I I, I really agree with that. And, and Sarah, I think you make such a good point. I remember the exact same conversation about the Duran case and being like, this person, I have a great character witness because I coached that that year for UMBC and be like, I have a great character witness and I don't know what to do with them here. Um, yeah. <laughs> It, it, I mean, it's and it's tough and it's it's like it's not that you don't want to talk about serious topics, but it's it's that balance. Um, Justin, you just alluded to something that I wanted to follow up on really quick, though, which is, you know, the balance of witnesses. And I wanted to talk for a moment about swing witnesses, because while Sarah, you were talking, I just went back and double checked. And this is the first nationals case since Empower Milk that has swing witnesses. We obviously don't know what it would have been in 2020, but the previous two years nationals have not had any swing witnesses. Your case does. I imagine there's different schools of thought given the short amount of prep time and just the fact that this is only going to get run for one tournament. But what was the thinking or the conversation that went into choosing to include swing witnesses in this year's case? I, I remember uh, the discussion there. I, I'm curious if Sarah and I have the same memory. Sarah, why do we have swing witnesses? Oh, you go first. You go first. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to recall the the exact conversation. <laughs> so, so I remember I, we talked about it. <laughs> So I said to the the group, all five Amped alums, I said, uh, do you want swing witnesses or you want to sidelock them? And they said, let's use swing witnesses. And I said, why? And they said, because we enjoyed them and it's fun. And that, that <laughs> oh, yeah. was that was literally the end of the discussion. And then it was just a question of which ones would be swing witnesses. So, so Sarah, is that does that uh, vibe with your memory? It does. That does. That <laughs> that goes with my memory, too. I was going to say, my my memory of it was just that we talked about it and we said, well, we all always enjoyed swing witnesses. We think it would be fun. Uh, I was trying to remember if we had like a deeper, a deeper reason I was forgetting. <laughs> no, and there doesn't have to be. It just was an interesting thing that that I noted about this year's case. And I, and I tend to agree. I mean, look, I you know, Empower Milk maybe had a few too many swing witnesses, but I think swing witnesses, you know, these are nominally the 48 best teams in the country. They should be able to handle a couple of swing witnesses. And, and I think that that's the right approach. Um, Drew, I know you had a couple of thoughts you wanted to follow up on, though. Well, I mean, I'll start by saying that I, I really actually enjoyed the fact that you guys have the swing witnesses. I think that they are both very interesting and I think that they do a lot for the case. So I, I, 
I'm glad that you guys did it. I, I agree with a lot of the sentiment that's been said. Um, something that I think we often ask that I'm always very curious about, though, when you're approaching writing a case, and especially by nature of doing it as a law school you know, trial team, what was the division of work and like kind of how was the, uh, you know, I kind of assume this, but like I kind of feel like Justin is like up above everything, kind of dividing up the work and kind of gathering it all together. But then earlier you said something that made me kind of feel like Sarah, maybe you were kind of in a combining role. Um, but what, what did that all look like? We set it up where, you know, we would have a sort of a standing case committee meeting every week at the same time. And we we started out by setting, you know, just an overall sort of scheduling goal in terms of saying, like, realistically looking at our semesters, when do we want to have a draft done by? When do we want to have this out for reviewers? And then we sort of worked backwards from that. Um, in terms of the division of labor, we started uh, with all of the non-expert witnesses, since obviously the experts were going to have reviewed the statements of the lay witnesses. So we couldn't really write those until we had the statements themselves. Um, and we we divided it up. I think everybody wrote two, I want to say two, um, different depositions for the for the witnesses and or the experts. Um, but once we had those, we, you know, with the next meeting, we said, okay, now we have all the legal documents. Who wants to write what? Those got drafted. Who wants to write what exhibit? Those got drafted. Um, and then I was sort of going, because I have had some case writing experience going through and editing, providing suggestions, putting in comments for people to incorporate. And sort of trying to make sure the case as a whole was cohesive factually and in terms of the sort of overarching structure of it. Um, Justin was actually our, our first full case reviewer. I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, I don't think you read the case until pretty much the whole thing was done. Um, and then we sent it to Justin for our first review. But obviously, Justin was there at all of the meetings and sort of helping us figure out um, maybe what to prioritize. And and you wrote some of the documents and things like that, too. So. Um, but yeah, that's sort of how we divided it up. Uh, Sarah is being truthful. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> always good. <laughs> yeah. Good to have yeah. confirmed. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think, I think the only thing that I wrote, like the first draft of might've been the special instructions. I'm not even sure I wrote the full first draft of that. So I, I, I know that you guys did all of the first drafts on the witness statements and the exhibits and almost all the law. You know what? I think I did the complaint and answer. I was about to say, uh, it sounds like your your contribution didn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I meant I meant pretrial order. Yeah, yeah right. I, I assume. Uh, yeah, but I, I they did not only the heavy lifting; they did almost all the lifting. Um, and I will say, I have never gotten a better first draft. Um, and I was particularly impressed and pleased, given the fact that not all of them had Sarah's case writing experience, and I thought they did an excellent job with it. Well, I, I definitely say I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, I am as well. And and I know, you know, as someone who who also has some case writing experience that, you know, tackling a case for the first time and, and figuring out the balance of how to find a voice and to to write something that people are actually going to go and and produce can be really, really difficult. Um, and that kind of leads me to a specific question I have about an element of this case. And that is exhibit three, which is the trial transcript. So there's there's sort of for lack of a better term, right, there's sort of a meta aspect to a case like this one where you have to write the underlying trial. And obviously you get your opportunities to like slip in your little AMTA jokes here and there. But it also has to be like the meat and potatoes of the case. In some ways, it, it reminds me a little bit of the 2017 Nationals case, the Taylor v. Trifecta case, where so much of the meat and potatoes of the legal argument had to do with 
the the excerpts of the transcript that we used for that case. And so, um, Sarah, I think I'll sort of go to you first, and then Justin will be interested for your thoughts too. How did you go about approaching writing something like that that has to have a lot of detail and information? But obviously, we all understand in a real life murder case would be hundreds and hundreds of pages, but but couldn't be in this case. Yeah. So I, I think that's um, I think that actually is the very first thing that got written. And uh, Justin, if I recall, you were you were fairly heavily involved with writing that part. You're, you're right. I, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, because we needed to make sure that that was sort of solid and ready to go. Um, because we we didn't really want a situation where we were writing witness statements and then having to go back and like change the underlying trial transcript a bunch because that's going to kind of throw everything off. So we wanted to make sure that was that was pretty solid before we started in on everything else. And and to your actual question, I think that I think it's a challenge, right? Because like you said, obviously a real murder case would be hundreds of pages long, and uh, and we wanted to keep this more manageable. I think the main way we tried to do it was was trying to just, if this makes sense, incorporate its length into the very nature of the problem. And what I mean by that is, given that it's a malpractice case, you know, the fact that it's so short is one of the arguments you can make for why the attorney did a bad job. So I think we tried to make it short, but also for, both for mock trial reasons and also kind of secondarily for substantive ones. Um, but also make sure that there were things in there that kind of packed a punch such that the defense could say like, well, hey, it was really short, but, you know, look how short the plan- the prosecution's case was. Or like, you know, it was short, but they really got some good points in in this in this short amount of time. So um, I guess we tried to make it a, f- a feature, not a bug, if that makes sense, because obviously we couldn't make it truly realistic and have it be tens or hundreds of pages long. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. We, we wanted to turn the the fact that we want to keep it short into a substantive advantage of the case that would you know bolster the plaintiff's case and say, look, he didn't do a cross, she didn't you know do an opening, that kind of thing. You know, I'll I'll mention that the, what you just said, both of you, really about incorporating its shortness. I really liked that because to me, I'm sitting there, you know, reading it and being like, oh my god, this person just gave a, you know, what twelve question direct examination of this officer like are we serious and i was just like i mean what like okay and then i you know when i went back and was reading the expert i'm like oh the expert talks about that okay cool i really like that um so it, it's it's funny you say that because um we, we of course were focused on the fact that the defense attorney the defendant in this case right. did a poor job by not doing very much I don't think during our discussions, I'm embarrassed to say that we ever talked about the fact that the prosecutor didn't do very much until one of our one of our reviewers, and I'll give him a shout out, his name's Avery Hitchcock. He was on our first Tyla National Championship team, and he coached the team with Sarah along with me this year. Um, he was one of our proofers. You'll see his name in the case. And he wrote back and said, prosecutor tried a murder trial awfully fast. I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> wait a second. That's actually a great substantive point for the defense to say, hey, wait a second, you you said that we were quick. Right. We didn't. Ha- we didn't have to do very much because they didn't put on much evidence. Right. Uh, and so we'd miss that. And so the reason that's in there is because he caught it. No, I mean I think it's a great point, and it. But to me, what I love about it is that it allows this transcript to actually be substantively used in the mock trial context because you're on such a time constraint. If it was a full transcript, like I mean, maybe you're reading like the occasional tiny expert, but like. When it's just eleven pages, 
that to me feels like something you can hand to the jury and say, here it is. This is all they did. Um, and that, that feels a little bit more substantial if you choose to go down that path. So I just, I, I did really think that I, I, as I was reading it, was like, that's a really clever way to, if you're going to do a malpractice case and if you're going to include a past trial transcript, how are you going to do it in such a way that works for mock trial, but also isn't like totally case breaking or, or making the case feel ridiculous um, where no one is acknowledging the the foolishness of this, you know, past trial transcript. I know that there wasn't really a question there. It was more of a, I'm appreciating what you guys did because I actually really enjoy this case. Um, but I, I guess in in way to to make it uh, a question out of all of this, I guess what I, I did wonder as I read through a lot of it was, you know, you mentioned that it was the first thing you wrote, how much time was spent on, okay, like, you know, what what is the this meat and potatoes going to be versus let's just get this done and then the rest of the cases where we're going to really build out some of the details sure so i I can take this one um before we even started writing this we had a lot of discussions about the big picture of the case and then the nitty-gritty i mean we had a case bible of these are the major events this is when they happened uh these are the exhibits we're going to use these are the witnesses these are the arguments we foresee for both sides Um, and then Catherine Rosenfeld, one of the authors, and I turned that into sort of uh, a huge document that just had everything. Because that way, if people were writing, everyone was on the same page. And then I think I took that and did a first draft of what is now Exhibit 3. I I don't think we ended up changing that much to it after the first draft, not because uh, there was anything magic about the first draft, but it was based on so much discussion that it sort of wrote itself. We we knew how little the defense attorney would be doing. when, when we put that together. Yeah. I think, and I think that was one of the things that was very helpful writing this organizationally, which was, you know, we were able to have better first drafts because we had already had a lot of substantive discussions in terms of factually what we wanted the case to look like. And we'd had those sort of as the larger group. So when people were going in to write the first drafts of their statements, we were all on the same page, both in terms of like basic, the overarching factual structure of the case, but also kind of what we wanted out of each witness. And so uh, the same was true for the trial transcript. Like we'd, we'd talked about it such that when we went to write it, we'd kind of already had the broader discussion about what it should look like. All that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that it building it out from there just seems like a logical way to do things. But it, it leads me to one other sort of follow-up question before we move on to a different topic. Um, you know, Justin, in the context of TBC cases, we've had this conversation on the podcast before, and that's about case balance. I'm sure you all had some conversations about case balance, but I could see the existence of the previous transcript being an interesting wrinkle in case balance and that you, of course, have to consider, you know, that as a piece of evidence that can certainly impact case balance and nationals cases don't get an opportunity to revise. You, You get to run them once and the balance is what the balance is. So how did you approach writing a case like this in the context of it being a civil case, but also making sure it's as balanced as possible? So the truthful answer is that you're always guessing to some extent. You yeah. try to, to get better at it as you do this more and more. Um, and this one was a tough one to predict because the nature of the case was unlike any that that we either coached or competed with or read. Um, and so my sense was we've got to make the defendant and, and the defendant's representation really, really bad, but give the defense something to say. 
I, I usually lean toward if you read it and think that the plaintiff is is probably right, that's the good start for a 50-50 case. Um, we also took the unprecedented step of, of polling people when we released the case and asked everybody uh, when they filled out their forms, do you think this leans P or D? So that way you could try to adjust uh, with the first set of revisions. And I don't know if this is a good sign or a bad sign, but the number you know on a one to five scale, I think the answer was exactly three or something close to exactly three, which was encouraging, but also you know, as from an author's perspective, uh, I was hoping that somebody would say push this way, push that way, so we could you know do something for balance. So we are crossing our fingers like everybody else uh, that it provides a, a reasonably fair playing field for nationals. I, I think to echo that, like Justin said, balance is something that obviously we were very cognizant of in trying to predict, but it's also sort of, you're trying to kind of predict the impossible (laughs) because, you know, when you write a case, like there's always going to be arguments that you didn't um, fully realize the scope of, or, I mean, teams are creative, right? And they should be. Um, That's a good thing that teams are going to look at the case and do things with it that you as the author didn't expect. Um, Unfortunately though, if you're trying to do case balance, that can kind of throw off your balance. (laughs) If, you know, there's something that a team is doing, you're like, oh, that's a really creative argument. Unfortunately, it sort of breaks things or something like that. Um, so I think we were trying to, I guess, make it, make the make the defendant look pretty bad because we know defense teams are going to, uh, are going to come up with creative solutions to, to those problems. And, uh, and we wanted to make sure that when they do, the plaintiff, you know, isn't without a case. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And and I think, you know, like what you've both alluded to, you're kind of taking your best shot at 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 it and and that's really all that anyone can expect. Um I want to move on to a different topic in a second, but but Justin just wanted to can, can, can I ask you about the case balance for a second? Sure. So I think it'd be fun since since we're on record. Why don't we each make a prediction on the case balance uh for the preliminary rounds? Obviously the national final round separate, but uh what's our prediction on case balance from everybody? Uh, Drew, Drew, you can Whoa. go first. <laughs> I was not expecting this. All right, all right. All right. Let me think for a second. I, I think that at the outset, uh, Mr. Evans, the question called for a number. Okay, you want I'm a just, number? I'm just, right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go fifty-five for no. That's too much. I think fifty-three forty-seven defense. Ben. All right. So. My question to you was going to have to do with this, and it was going to give me more information on this. So since it's my show, I'm going to ask my question and then come back to yours. Um, Perfect. Which is, you said something about it being exactly a three when you got feedback from people. What Can you contextualize that for what that means? Sure. So we said one to five, um, what's the balance? One would be extreme plaintiff, five would be extreme defense, and three would be perfectly balanced. And the average of all of the numbers that people submitted was almost exactly three, if not exactly three. Okay. And, so the yeah. general average suggested that the sort of the mean opinion was that it was essentially balanced. Right. Now, I don't think we got many threes. I mean, I've never met, uh, you know, an amateur coach who thought this case is perfect. Um, <laughs> but, but it was a lot of twos and fours and I think almost exactly equal number of twos and fours. And, and I think this information was published when we, we released the, the change log. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Um, so in that instance, I will say when I read it, I thought it was pretty balanced. Um, I'm going to go 48 P 52 D. Sarah. That was going to be my guess too. I was going to say 52 D. Uh, just cause I, I think, I think first of all, I'm always defense biased. <laughs> I, I am always going to think there's a defense bias. Um, but 
yeah, I think I think P's got a strong case here. So I think 52D would be my number two. I'm going to go, I've now seen the case tried once. Um, I'm going to say 46% P, uh, and, and I'll, I'll add this caveat. One of the things I think that's very difficult about case writing when it comes to case balance is trying to figure out what we mean by case balance. You might say, well, it's obvious you want it to be 50-50 when it plays out. And maybe that's fair. But one thing that's tricky is when you're trying it for the first time, we know that generally speaking, the party with the burden struggles the first time they try a case. Um, and so suppose that a case played you know, over a course of a full season as a 50-50 case, but at the first tournament, it's not a 50-50 case. Do we call that balanced or not? I don't know. Or we see this a lot in the law school level, um, that playoff rounds are 50-50 or even lean toward plaintiff or prosecution, but the preliminary rounds, because it's harder to try that side of the case, tend to lean defense. And so Everybody can put on defense, but only the top teams can do a good plaintiff for prosecution. We saw this last year, trial by combat. I think that it leaned defense during the prelims, but it was stronger for the prosecution in the playoffs, which is sort of what we anticipated. Do we call that a balanced case? And so I, I don't know what the answer is, uh, but I think we want it to be close to 50-50 with the recognition that, uh, you know, that can mean different things. So I'll quickly say, because it's, I'm glad that you brought up that last point, Justin, about what does case balance mean and what, what are we looking for in a case? Because I actually think that I really agree with you that I don't think that the best cases are ones that are exactly perfect 50-50. To me, what I want to see is a case where both sides have the opportunity to make cohesive, interesting, fun legal arguments that are potentially winning. And I think that to me, it can be balanced. Even it can be balanced from the perspective of both sides have a equal chance of winning, even if there is an imbalance in the eventual results because of you know all the variety of other factors that potentially exist. Um, and it is interesting to me that all four of us have a slight defense bias, and I think that that is at least to me in large part because as all of us know there is a natural you know ampta and not I shouldn't say ampta natural mock trial bias towards defense you know not even from the extent that it's harder for the plaintiff sometimes to meet their burden but you know we talk about the fact that judges often score higher later in rounds i mean there are so many reasons why the defense will naturally have the, the slightest hair of an advantage at times. And I think that to me, at least that is reflected by, um, you know, four people that I think it's safe to say know a, a thing or two about mock trial. Well, Sarah's been doing mock trial longer than the rest of us have been alive. That's so, <laughs> you know. uh, all right. Well, I, I think Drew's thoughts are well-placed and I'm going to take us to our final major topic uh, here. And, you know, Sarah, a little while ago, you were talking about creativity and how important it is to have creativity. I think everyone agrees with that sentiment. You all were writing this case in an interesting context, which is that this past summer, Justin, you know well because you, you chaired the committee, we had an AMTA ad hoc committee that focused on invention, produced a number of different things, and and it created this new body, the, the CIC, the Competition Integrity Committee, which uh, now oversees invention of fact issues but it also created this guilty portrayal rule. You all wrote this case, released it, and subsequent to that, AMTA released guidance uh, via the CIC about the guilty portrayal rule specifically related to defense witness Brooklyn Singh, who was the police officer in the original investigation. So 
I understand, you know, I know Justin, you're on the board, you're both affiliated with AMTA. I understand you can't speak for AMTA, but from the context of case writers, how did you approach things knowing about this new guilty portrayal rule while also putting that one witness on the defense? And just generally, how did you approach the issue of writing this case, knowing that, you know, invention of fact is a hot button topic and one that we're now going to have in tournament review at the national championship tournament? Uh, I don't have a strong preference on who goes first on this one. Um, I don't know if either of you has any specific thoughts on that. Uh, Sarah's like, I do not want to touch this topic. <laughs> uh, That's why I'm asking. <laughs> so it came up very little during our case writing discussion because of the topic we chose. I think if we'd chosen a topic like the year-long case, uh, where we're dealing with the airplane crash and trying to figure out who caused the crash, then it would make a lot of sense that a guilty portrayal rule would impact the case significantly because if one person screwed up, that makes it less likely that another person screw up was the cause. This is a different type of case because a defense attorney uh, has an obligation to their client irrespective of how good the police investigation is. And in fact, I think you could argue that the worse the investigation, the greater the responsibility a defense attorney has to highlight that, right? It's almost like a negligent entrustment case. Uh, suppose that I'm a parent and I give my car keys to, uh, you know, to somebody who I know is a terrible driver, who I know likes to you know, drink and drive, who isn't licensed. And you have that person take the stand and they say, oh, I'm a terrible driver. That, that doesn't defeat my negligence. In fact, it proves my negligence, my negligent entrustment. It's similar here. The fact that the officer, I think we can agree, did not do an excellent investigation, um, that does not relieve the defendant of liability in the same way that somebody saying I'm screwed up in the design of an airplane or the mechanics of an airplane might relieve that defendant in the Kohler-Campbell case of liability. And so it really wasn't something we talked about much. We included the, the rule for Singh and I think for Morgan Carter added an abundance of caution. But you know, my honest opinion is it doesn't really impact the merits of the case at all because it's not like in a malpractice case, a defense attorney could say, well, I'm not liable for being a bad lawyer because the officer did a bad investigation. That, 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 that defense just doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. Well, let me ask this sort of just as a follow up. And, and, you know, you guys knew this case extremely, extremely well. And obviously, you know, you were involved in the creation of it. So I'm sure that you all have, you know, you understand sort of the different paths through the evidence. But one of the things that jumped out to me, right, is, you know, so the defense, you know, both sides have essentially four, I guess, theoretically five witnesses that they could call in more, more realistically, you know, probably four. So in this situation, right, if you call the Brooklyn Singh, the, you know, the police officer, then the guilty portrayal rule obviously applies to them and kind of is foreclosed. So is there any concern given the smaller number of witnesses to the possibility that the combination of the guilty portrayal rule and, you know, calling or not calling that witness could make things difficult for defense teams to, like, have a viable set of three witnesses to to put on the stand. The, the, the guilty portrayal rule is interesting for me because obviously it's something that didn't exist when I competed in AMTA. It's very new. Um, and so I am. Sarah, it would have banned almost all the Georgia Tech theories, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, only, only, only your defense theories. Not all of them. <laughs> right. right. Um, no, but it, it's something that I was maybe a little bit more wary of just because it is new and it is something that I don't have as much experience with because I, you know, obviously don't compete in AMTA anymore. So I haven't sort of lived with it in the same way that AMTA teams have. Um, but but to your question, I think that 
I think that what we tried ultimately to do was to say, there will be some teams that may not want to touch this witness at all because it implicates the guilty portrayal rule, right? And I could totally see a team saying, hey, CIC, invention of fact, hot topic, it's new. We don't even want to get involved with like a possibility that this could become a problem, right? But which I, I think is a reasonable choice for for team to for a team to make. Um but I think what we tried to do is come up with with ways that the witness would be relevant that didn't involve blaming the witness, right? Um, things like, like Justin said, obviously, if you call them, you know, that doesn't relieve the defense attorney of their obligation, but also sort of just factually an example of like, well, hey, you know, was it reasonable for the defense attorney to have brought this argument if even the cops missed it, for instance, right? Like things like that, where you're sort of, you're attacking the credibility of the investigation, but not in a way that you're really saying this witness is guilty, right? Like this witness did it, but rather just like, hey, we can't hold this defense attorney to a standard that is beyond what even the cops did in this case. Like that, that can't be the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think ultimately what it came down to for me is I know invention is a really hot topic, obviously, and people have a lot of different opinions on it and, and how it's handled. But I think AMTA teams are creative in a way that's that's very good. And obviously, the CIC puts new constraints on that in terms of what they can and can't do. But if those new constraints exist, I think teams are still very capable of being creative within whatever that new framework is. And I think a lot of the challenge right now is just that we're all adjusting to that new framework, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, these are the best 48 teams in the country. They They're they're smart. They're going to look at this and come up with creative ways to use this witness that don't necessarily run afoul of the rule. And so I think our main thing was trying to give them meat to do that with, if that's something that they wanted to engage in. Justin, do you think that's fair? hundred uh, percent. I mean, I, I think the two things to touch on. One, I want to highlight your, your point about using Singh affirmatively rather than negatively. The more realistic and I think legally correct argument with Singh is if an officer who's really experienced couldn't get this right, how are we expecting the uh, the defense attorney to, right? The the investigator with all these state resources, if they couldn't get it, how could we expect the defense attorney to do it? And I think that argument is available whether or not you call Singh. But in terms of uh, answering Ben's question about, okay, are we giving people enough theory choices? What I think is useful is that even if you don't call Singh, you can absolutely, if you want to impugn Singh's investigation, the other witnesses are sufficiently aware of it uh, that they can do so. That makes sense. And I thought all of those points were very interesting and gave really interesting insight on how a case comes together because there's so many different threads that get pieced together and and trying to give people different options. And that was that was really interesting. So I appreciate you both sharing that. Um, so to wrap us up, I have one last question for each of you. Um, obviously nationals is rapidly upcoming. It'll be here in just a couple days. So you guys will get to either see or hear about how the case is in action. So is there one thing, um, and, uh, Sarah, I'll go to you first for this question. Is there one thing about the case that you are most excited to see actually play out, whether it's a piece of evidence or a witness or something that that's in there that you think I'm so excited to see what these elite 48 teams do with X thing in the case? I know we didn't preview this one, so I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> I think I probably have kind of a, a twofold answer. The first truly being Singh, um, partially because I've said it a few times, I'll say it again. I think creativity in AMTA is is fantastic, and it's something that really sets the activity apart. 
And so I'm I'm genuinely excited to see what teams do with that witness because I think there's a, there's a few different ways that you could go with it, and I think it it's a it's an interesting defense witness that you can call um, theory wise and portrayal wise. So I'm I'm kind of excited to see how that plays out because I want to I want to see the creative cool things that you know teams come up with and do with it. Um, and then the other thing is I'm 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 excited to see how teams handle you know Ben you mentioned earlier kind of the meta aspect of this. Um, when we set out, we, we didn't set out to write like a funny meta case about mock trial. (laughs) Um, I know some people online have kind of alluded to that, but that, that was not the intention. Um, but I, I am kind of curious to see how the, the meta like trial about a trial plays out because I think that it's just so different than anything else. And I think it gives teams a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting hooks to play with. Justin, uh, anything stand out to you? Yes. Uh, before I answer your question, I hope you'll you'll give me this. Um, I wanted to congratulate Drew and his Tulane team on qualifying for nationals. Uh, it's it's an enormous achievement in law school to do that, particularly for a team uh, that is more student run. That's in, in college. There's many more opportunities for student run teams to excel, and so you know Drew's accomplishment there is extra impressive. Um, ben, I, I want to congratulate you. I understand that that you have hung up the the spurs uh, from coaching undergraduate mock trial and congratulations on a phenomenal national championship career. I appreciate that. I, you know, I'm sure my face will still float in and out here, here and there in the empty <laughs> world. But, you know, I, I said, I forget who I said this to recently, but I was like, if I'm going to beat Justin and Phil every so often, I got to have my full attention on the law school world. So <laughs> that's very kind of you saying I appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you, Justin. I, I do appreciate it. Nationals was a lot of fun, and I I hope that I can be there back there next year. And I I guess I do hope that I face you guys because it'll <laughs> probably be in a later round and probably be a good sign. But I can safely say I really hope I don't face you in the first two <laughs> rounds. Uh, so I, I will now answer your question. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I'll say that I'm looking forward to two things, one in a really positive way, one with some nervousness. Uh, I'm really excited to see how teams try the case, uh, both from the meta perspective. You can envision all the arguments about the things that the lawyers in the mock trial do that the defendant didn't and the other side countering. And, and I think that's going to be really fun. Uh, I'm also just excited to see the different theories. We tried to write this so that each team had a lot of different ways they could play the case. I don't even know what I would do if I were trying this case. I think there's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, on the more nervous side, I want to see how the CIC uh, review process plays out. Um, I was the chair of the committee that, that put this forward, but you know, as, as anybody who's been on committees knows that that doesn't necessarily mean that that person was a proponent. And I don't mean to say that I, I dislike the idea, uh, but I'm nervous about it. Um, I think I was nervous about it at the committee level. I was nervous about it at the board level. I think we're trying it because this is something that students said that they wanted when surveyed, that directors wanted when surveyed. And I think that the CIC and those who've put it together um, have done as good a job of creating an inaugural process. But the idea of penalties and review at nationals and those time constraints and those stakes is scary. Um, And so I'm hopeful that it never gets used. Um, But if it does get get used, I hope it, it, it gets used well. So those are the things I'm looking forward to for nationals. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. I think all of that's going to be really interesting. Uh, And of course, most importantly, Justin, Sarah, we know that you're both very busy coming off of winning national championships and writing loss or college mock trial cases. Uh, So we're really grateful to both of you for taking time 
uh, to come on the show. We're excited to see how this case plays out uh, and just looking forward to a great national championship. So I'll, Sarah, I'll say first, thank you so much for making time to chat with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was our pleasure. And Justin, of course, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, I, I didn't get a chance to toss this in earlier, but of course, since the last time you're on the show, uh, you and Spencer Parkey, Parkey at Berkeley have launched uh, Unscripted Direct, a podcast about the law school community. Uh, so I hope that that's been going well. Folks should check that out if they haven't already. And thanks for uh, jumping back over here to come on the mock review. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, we appreciate everyone listening. We're going to have another Nationals preview episode in your feed very soon. Uh, So thanks for everyone's patience as we work through our schedules. Uh, Good luck to all the teams at Nationals. And until we're in your feed again, this has been the Mock Review with Ben and Drew. 